0: Ah, right. Well, it's great to be here again, and it's good to spend some time praying for Ukraine. If you do want to know what's going on amongst Christians there, I should have got the URL. I didn't. I just thought of this on the way down. There is a very useful newsletter that's put out by the European Evangelical Alliance, and it's available online. Um, all you have to do, I think, is put "European Evangelical Alliance newsletter" or something like that into a Google search engine, and you'll find it. But uh, up to the point where the invasion took place, they were talking to um, Ukrainian Christian leaders about the state of the church and what was happening in their towns and their 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 congregations and so on. I haven't heard anything since the invasion started. They haven't had anything out. Now, they usually do update that uh, several several times a month, so I, I would anticipate there will be new stuff any any moment now, so keep your eye on that. Don't forget the normal news sources either. I was uh, watching yesterday. I, wasn't too well yesterday, but in between bouts and not feeling well, I was trying to keep up with the situation in Ukraine. And so at one point, I was on the BBC news page, which is being updated at the moment every few minutes as new news comes. And, comes. and uh, it's, it's very informative. But I noticed as I was looking at it that there were 260,000 people currently looking at that page. And it just flashed across my mind. I wonder what they're making of this. Most people must be looking at this and just feeling helpless. Nothing they can do whatsoever. I wonder how many of that 260,000 are Christians who can pray. Wouldn't it make a difference if in reading the news we were able to turn it straight away into prayer? So do look at the sources like that and uh, and, and stay concerned about Ukraine. Uh, there is It is so important, as Ashley's been saying, not just for um, its own sake, but also for other countries around about Moldova, uh, the... Um, Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, there are all sorts of places that could be in the path of a new oppression if we don't get this one. So we do need to pray for kings and all of those that are in authority so that we can live a quiet life in, in, in peace and honesty. Anyhow, that's not what you asked me to speak about tonight. You've given me a fair old passage, haven't you, tonight? I was thinking on the way down, this is only going to be of interest to people who are married, isn't it? I remember being in the Christian Union when I was a student at Oxford University and every week they used to recommend some books to us. I remember Andrew Corns, the secretary of the, the, the Christian Union, standing up and saying, I'm going to recommend tonight four books about marriage. And everybody kind of... Oh, yeah. He said, now, listen, the time to read these books is now, because if you wait until after you're married, everybody will wonder, when you see you're reading them, what's wrong with your marriage? So he said, get to the principles now and then you won't have to read these books again. <laughs> And there is that, you know, if you're not married, then it's, it's good to know what God's word says about marriage, just in case you ever end up there. But even if you don't, or if marriage is a thing of the past where you're concerned, this passage is still important because Paul hooks it in, as we'll see right at the end, to the picture of what God wants to do to the church. Christ and his bride is the reality that lies behind the human relationship of marriage. And we're all fascinated with relationships when you think about it. I mean, how would soap operas on TV, Coronation Street, Emmerdale, EastEnders, how would they survive for five minutes if it weren't for love stories? If it weren't for the stories of marriages, good and bad? How many romantic novels get borrowed from the libraries every week? OK, Mills and Boone is maybe a bit over the hill now, but there's still millions. And most films, most novels, most plays have got love, relationships between men and women somewhere in there. And so it's no mistake, I think, that God took something that's of such constant fascination to human beings as a way of explaining to us exactly what it is that his plan involves where Christ and the church are husband and bride, (laughs) So we'll get on to that anyway later on. Last week I was a Methodist preaching in a Methodist church in Exeter and they asked me to preach about a chapter just before this, um, the, the start of the chapter actually, which presumably you, you guys have covered over the last few weeks and they asked me to talk about living in the light. Well, it was the end of chapter 4 really and uh, just to, 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 as part of that, I, I s- just oriented them into where their passage was in the whole second half of Ephesians. So I've got a couple of those slides here. I said the first half of Ephesians, and I've said this to you before, is all the doctrinal section. It's where you learn all kinds of things about God's plan through history, bringing Jews and Gentiles together, breaking down the middle wall of partition, making out of the two one new entity, and that's the church. And uh, you end uh, chapter three, don't you, with to him be glory in the <laughs> throughout all ages amen then you start chapter four by talking about okay so what does that mean and the second half of the book where you are now with tonight's passage is about how you live out all of the things that you've learned about in chapters one to three it's the practical part of the whole thing and if you look at how it divides up well uh the first bit of chapter four is about the church and the different ministries and gifts that God has put in the church, what God wants the church to be, and so on. But what we are as the church together is just one part of the whole deal. And so the next section, which is what I was speaking about to them, that's why that little arrow is there, is about our personal lives. How do we live it out in our relationships with one another? What kind of behavior do we have to show to the world outside if we are going to look like what we're supposed to look like when we're together. And so you find five little practical examples in the whole passage where Paul says, this is how it should be, this is how it should be, this is how it should be. Having talked about those nitty-gritty practicalities, he then backs off and talks about how you do it successfully. And in the passage immediately before what we've got tonight... He talks about some great principles that lie behind. See, those five different uh, examples of how you ought to behave could seem just random and plucked out of the air. So he says, no, they're all about, first of all, living in love. (laughs) Second, about living in the light, living in honest relationships with one another. And third, they're about being filled with the Spirit. So having laid all of that ground, he now gets to talking about very specific roles that we play. And this is where we are tonight, marriage, family, and work. Three areas where there can be more conflict or there can be more glory (laughs) than anywhere else. And then he ends the whole of the letter, of course, by talking about the whole armour of God. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, you need uh, to have the armour so that you can stand. And having done all, stand. And so this is where we are tonight, then talking at the, the first part of the section, which is about marriage, then family, and then work. So let's have a look at, um, at what the passage says. It starts with verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission has got to be a mutual thing. It's two ways. It's not that there are some people who are up there and other people who are down there. Roles can vary. I remember uh, a, a, an old a Christian youth work leader, Jim Bunton from Frontier Youth Trust, once saying, you know, we, we need to be leaders in some situations and followers in others. He said, imagine a bunch of hell's agents, angels heading up the motorway. It's easy to tell as they stream out in front of everybody else who is the leader. He's the guy on the big Harley at the front, you know, in long hair streaming out behind him, uh, no <laughs> helmet, of course, uh, looking like a Norse god or something, and uh, all of the others are kind of looking at him, he's the boss, he's the leader. He's, he's. Uh, and then, something goes wrong. One of the engines starts coughing and putting out blue smoke, and they all swerve onto the hard shoulder and look worried because they don't know how to fix this bike. And somebody else pushes his way to the front, and his car is a screwdriver, and he's small and spotty and greasy. He doesn't look like the leader at all, but he's the one who's the mechanic. And so they all stand back in wonder, including the god at the front. Well, he does magic on this bike, he's the leader in that situation. So he's just finished, and the bike is going again, when suddenly there's a, 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 a siren sound and a blue flashing light, and the police have arrived. And uh, they stop and say, ''What are you guys doing on the hard shoulder? What's going on here?'' And immediately, they push somebody else to the front. And he can be small and insignificant and weedy, but he's the one who's got an (laughs) A-level. He's the one who can talk. And so they put him out in the front, and for a while, he becomes the leader. And Jim said, it's often like that in youth work, and in fact, in the Church of Christ, that we have different gifts, we have different abilities, and in different situations, we will take leadership. And in other situations, we need to know how to step back and let the people who really know what they're doing get on with the job. And that can apply in in, in marriage as much as anything else. Submit to one another. This is um, the word in Greek, he says. And that comes from the Greek verb hupotasomai, and that's made up of two bits. The tasomai bit means I arrange myself, and the hupo bit simply means under. So to submit is simply to arrange yourself under somebody else it may be temporary it may be permanent but that's the situation you put yourself under somebody else and uh, so uh, as verse 21 says this will happen to uh, all of us in different ways in different relationships and the the one we're looking at tonight obviously is the marriage relationship where it says to wives submit to your husbands and men often point out, yes, but it doesn't say husbands submit to your wives. It just, we've got to love you. Well, certainly. But it doesn't say wives love your husbands either, does it? Does that mean that the wives don't have to love the husbands as long as they submit? Of course it doesn't. And so what he's doing, it seems to me, and I'll try to show that in the rest of what I say, is shows two different ways in which mutual submission works. The way the wife does it, and the way the husband does it. He phrases it differently, Because for marriages in those days, the deal was very, very different. We've seen a lot of changes in the way that marriage life operates, even in my lifetime. I mean, I think back to some of the marriages I used to see when I was a little boy back in the 1950s. And expectations have changed so enormously over the last few years. We need to be able to realise what in this passage is eternal (laughs) and what reflects the situation as it was in Paul's time and get out of it what God intends us to have. Okay, okay. so I want to talk about just three things tonight, I think. First of all, what wives have to do. That's what they're in verses 22 to 24. Second, what husbands have to do, which is verses 25 to 28. And then the final thing, what marriage should look like, which he's talking about in those last four verses at the end. So, let's look at those three things one after another. What wives have to do. At first sight, it seems pretty strict, doesn't it? submit in everything, says Paul. And uh, he gives uh, two uh, additional bits of information to that. First of all, you have to do it as you do to the Lord. And you have to do it in everything. Now that seems pretty much as if it would stop the wife doing anything on her own, wouldn't it? And sometimes people have taken that kind of a line. I must admit, as I was uh, preparing this, I was thinking about something that once happened to me when, uh, <laughs> this is a bizarre one, but there's a one time in my life when I ever felt like a secret agent. What was happening, happened was that I was sitting at home one day when the phone rang, and it was a, a big charismatic church in London. And I said, why are you ringing me? And they said, well, do you know so-and-so? And they gave me the name of a girl, and I said, yep. She's a student from our church. Actually, I've not seen her for a while because this year she's she's a language student and she's been doing her year out in France. Um, So I'm not sure exactly how she's doing, but uh, yeah, she was a fairly new Christian when she left us. Um, Yes, I know her very well. They said, well, she's come to us. She came to us with a problem yesterday and we said, oh, this is big. We are not going to solve this one for you. You need to go back to your home church. Is there anybody there whom you can trust? And she gives your name. Oh, thank you very much. So the next day she rang me up, and I found what a mess she'd got herself into, or someone else had got her into as well. When she'd gone to France, she had been in the same small town as a young American missionary and his wife. They were about the same age that she was, and the three of them gravitated together, because there weren't many Christians there. It was a small church, and they were the only ones of that age. The only thing was, the American wife was pregnant. And as the time for the baby's birth, and then the birth, uh, as they came uh, around, she dropped out of it a little bit, and the young missionary and the girl from our church were thrown together more and more. Well, one night something happened, which wasn't supposed to happen, and they slept together. And he immediately said to her, now, I believe that since you, you, you slept with me, that makes you my wife in the sight of God. And she said, but uh, you have got a wife already. And he said, yes, well, many advanced Bible teachers will tell you that in the Old Testament, uh, lots of people had more than one wife, and it's a teaching that's not popular in the church today, but um, it's a secret teaching that many of us told that it's possible to have more than one wife. And she was a very nervous, she was going, oh, oh, all right then. And he then said, I have a very strong doctrine of headship. I believe that whatever the husband says, the wife has to do. So you have to make yourself available to me any time I choose. And she had spent the rest of that year basically as his sex slave. It was a horrific thing to have. Every so often he would ring up and say, I'm coming around, get ready. And she knew something inside her that this was all wrong. She, she hadn't been taught much about it, but she knew that this was not the way it was supposed to be. He could dazzle her with his command of the scriptures. But uh, she thought, well, at least at the end of the year, I'll be going back home. I'll probably never see him again, and that'll be that. And uh, he said to her, as the end approached, "Um, well, when you get back to England, I'll be coming across for a conference within a week and a half, so I want you to book a hotel room and get it ready for us. And she began to realize, I am never going to get away from this guy. And he said, yep, we're married for life. And so that was the point at which, in absolute desperation, and she really was desperate, believe me, she went to the church in London and then came round to see me after that. And that was how I ended up feeling like a secret agent, because um, we decided we had to confront him when he came to to Britain, but she said, you mustn't go up and just talk to him, because he'll just turn on his heel and go back uh, into the airport again, you'll never see him again, and I'll still be left with a problem. So we reckoned we had to get him onto the English side before anything else could happen. And, and so it was that when the day came for his arrival, she was standing at the barrier in arrivals, and I was standing six feet behind, feeling very silly, trying to read a newspaper. <laughs> and of course, as soon as he came through, and he was through so far that he couldn't, couldn't go back again, I stepped forward and said, Hi, my name is John Allen. I work for World Evangelical Fellowship, which I did in those days. And he was very, very, very keen on titles and rank and things like that. And I'd just like to talk to you about um, uh, what you're doing, and he said, well, I'd love to talk to you, but uh, I'm a bit busy this afternoon, and uh, perhaps we can arrange it for some other time. Have you got a card? And then I just dropped the pretense and said, I don't know exactly what you're doing this afternoon, Buster, and if you carry on with that, I'll make sure you don't have any ministry by this time tomorrow. He was shocked. I said, that's a terrible thing to say. And I said, well, come on, let's get a cup of coffee and talk about it. And so we did. We talked for the next hour, and I have to admit, he was pretty convincing. He almost had me convinced that this was a sad fantasy, that the girl had just dreamt up in her own mind. He said something that just didn't tie up with something he'd said earlier, and the mass just dropped. And, uh, well, to cut a long story short, we managed to sort things out. Not then. It took another month, but eventually we got him uh, to talk to his wife about what had happened, and to his home church, and to leave his mission and go home, and go under their discipline for a while. Now, I don't have to do that very often, (laughs) but you can see how this odd doctrine that you have to do whatever I tell you was just eating up her life. And in fact, the girl concerned, she's now almost a middle-aged woman, and for the last 20 years anyway, she's been suffering from ME. And I think it's not unrelated, the disease that she's, she's, she's contracted is very much a result of the stress and the, the terrible experience that she went through that year. However, I'm not saying that that always happens when people say, no, this means that the husband decides everything. Paul gives a reason for it. He says, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He says, this is why you've got to submit in everything as you do to the Lord, and you've got to do it in everything, in every detail of your life. What is he actually talking about? What does it mean to say that the husband is head of the wife? There is only one other verse in the whole of the Bible which talks about the husband as head of the wife, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now this is where you start having a few problems. Because if head means the one who is an authority over you, then you've got some strange things happening, haven't you? You've got the wife at the bottom of the heap. The head of the wife is the husband. Well, okay, that's fair enough. And then the head of the husband is Christ. That's fair enough as well. He's uh, under the command of Christ. But then the head of Christ is God. Don't we believe that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal with one another? Jesus got it—not robbery—to be made equal with God. He was—he's on a, a terms terms of equality with with God the Father. And so, if you're going to interpret "head" as the one who's in charge, then you have got some interesting problems to solve. For one thing, there's no other place in the whole of Greek literature where one human is called the head of another. We talk about heads of department, or heads of uh, missions, and heads of industries, and things things like that, all the time in our world. Because we happen to know that the head is where the brain sits, and it's a brain that makes decisions and directs our lives. And so we use this word, head, as the person who's in charge. That was not the case with the Greeks. They thought it all started from the heart, somewhere down here. And so the head was just the bit that you saw first of a human being. The thing that made you say, um, oh, that's Ash, that's Ray, or, or whatever. because. It was a bit that made them recognisable. It was the public part of them. Second, you've got to come to terms with this. The Greeks and Romans didn't agree that the head was the decision-making part of your body. Well, i said that already, really. Okay, fair enough. Third thing, if Christ is the head of the husband, only the husband, where does that leave the wife? Isn't Christ the head of the wife as well? Or is she only related to Christ through her husband? And fourth, if God is the head of Christ, as we said already, what happens to Christ's equality with God? So you have to look at this word head and say, what what does it actually mean? And um, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a woman called Catherine Clark Kroger who started a very interesting theory that actually the word head means source of. So God the Father is the source of Christ in the sense that he sent him into the world. Christ is the source of human life, and and so on. But that doesn't really work with her. What's worse, theologians like Wayne Grudem have shown conclusively that she got it all wrong. (laughs) The passages she takes from Greek are taken from different periods of Greek history, they don't fit together, and most of them don't say what she wants them to say anyhow. So that argument has gone on in a very sterile way for at least 10, possibly 20 years now. So what does it actually mean, this word head? Well, I think what it means is the head is the prominent part of the person. It's what you see first. It's what you, you, you represents the other parts in public. So if you go look back at the, the pyramid thing that we we're looking at there, and start from the top here, God the Father and Christ, what is their relationship? What was Christ doing here on earth? God the Father was honoured or dishonoured by Christ. And he was honoured by him in every detail, wasn't he? Christ did only those things that pleased the Father. He fulfilled the Father's will perfectly. When you saw him, you saw the glory of God. You saw the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus represented the Father perfectly on earth. Now, in the same way, if Christ is the head of the husband, then the husband can honour Or dishonor Christ. The way he lives his life out in society, in public, the way that women didn't in those days, shows the rest of the watching world what he thinks of Jesus Christ. And just as Christ brought honor to his Father by everything he did, so we can bring honor or dishonor to Christ by the way we live our lives. Now, how about the wife who doesn't normally get out too much in public? Well, she honors or dishonors the husband in that culture. The way she lives will either bring honor to the family, the marriage relationship, and ultimately to the husband and to Christ and God the Father in the same way. So that seems to be what headship is talking about. So just as Christ brings glory to the father, the husband lives for Christ in the world out there, the wife brings credit to the husband by the way she acts within the marriage relationship. It's not about power. If you read the other passage in First Corinthians that we were talking about, you'll see what that whole passage is about. is not who wears the trousers in this marriage, who's in charge. It's about what brings glory to God. And so headship, this, this whole idea of the head, is about bringing credit and honor and glory to the person who is next up on, on the chart there. You'll also notice that when it says submit to your husband, it says submit to your own husbands. That's interesting, isn't it? That little Greek word idios, which means private, personal, yours. Often people don't discuss that one. Why would it say submit to your own husband? After all, who else's husband is a woman likely to submit to? Well, when you put some references together from the letters in the New Testament, you start to see why Paul might be using that word. First Tim- Timothy chapter 2, for instance, you've got this strange verse. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with sobriety. You think, what? You have to have a baby to get to heaven? What is this actually saying? What's going on here? And of course, it's not saying that. And what uh, people say this probably means is the fact that uh, in Ephesus, women were very, very dominant in public religion. There was a massive temple, for instance, with all sorts of priestesses in it, and the source of their spiritual power was supposed to be that they kept right away from men. And some of the ideas of Ephesian religion were starting to affect people in the Christian church. And so there were women who were putting themselves forward as spiritual leaders and saying to their husband, because I'm a spiritual woman... I can't sleep with you. I can't have babies for you. That's an earthly thing to do. That's gross. I'm not going to do that because I want to be spiritual. Otherwise, I will not even go to heaven. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. A woman will be saved through childbearing. You can have babies. You can have a family. And you'll still get to heaven. No problem. If you continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. If you show that you're living, living in the Christian lifestyle, we were speaking about this morning, where the fruit of the Spirit is coming out of your life then there's no question about your spirituality continuing. And uh, it's probably that that lies behind 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well, where Paul says to husbands and wives, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, and then come together again. Why would you want to give up on sexual relations? Well, Paul says there's one good reason, which is that you want to devote yourselves to prayer for a while. But otherwise, he says, you're going to be tempted to go the wrong way. So don't deprive yourselves except for that very good reason. Why else would you do it? Well, one of those reasons would be that once again, the woman draws back and says, no, because I'm a spiritual person, I'm not going to sleep with you. And we know that was happening. In, in, in Ephesus later on because when Paul left Timothy in charge in Ephesus, he warned him against people who were spreading the wrong kind of message. And who were they preying on? They were preying on Christian women. And he says they are the kind who worm their way into hope and gain control over weak-willed women. And they were putting together bands of female followers who'd follow them around, a bit like Rasputin's girls in Russian society, who tra- treated him as the great prophet, the one who could do nothing wrong. And this is why I think Paul is saying here, submit to your own husband, not somebody else's. It was happening in Crete as well. When you see Paul writing to Titus around about the same time as, as, as he writes to Timothy, you find that word hupertasso coming up again. And uh, he talks about uh, the wives being subject to their own husband. you see that word again? Idios comes in, idios andrasin. Their own husband's. And uh, clearly the same problem was there. And when you read uh, Titus, you see evidence of that. He talks about there are many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. They're introducing strains between husband and wife. They're saying to the wives, don't follow your husband. He's a good man, but he's not very spiritual. I am your leader now. I am going to tell you how you should live your life. And so Paul says to the The women in Ephesus who might be tempted to go in that direction submit to your own husbands. That's the important thing. So it seems to me that what he's talking about here has principles that apply right through from Paul's day to our day. Even if our definition of marriage looks very different than in those days, I mean married women in those days did not have much freedom, they couldn't follow a career, they could hardly leave the house. It was a bit like Pakistan is nowadays if you were seen talking to somebody else, even if it was a, a male relation, then you were in trouble. And so especially in those Greek environments, like Ephesus, like Crete, it wasn't so bad in the Roman environments. You don't find the same thing happening in, in places like Rome and Philippi when Paul writes to them. But in those Greek environments, marriage was something that was, was kept very, very uh, isolated as far as women were concerned. So women had to submit to their husband. Uh, allow him to be the leader, allow him to take the marriage forward because he was the public person. What comes out of that for us today? The question of, of, of bringing credit or discredit to your husband. The question of keeping the marriage as harmonious and, uh, and healthy as it possibly can be. The wife has an enormous amount to, 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 to put into that and uh, that, it seems to me, is what they're being commanded to do here. Submit in that kind of a way. But the husbands, what happens about the husbands? What do husbands have to do? Well, this is where we get to verses 25 to 28. Love your wives, says Paul. That's that big word. That's the important thing. Love your wives. Now, when he said wives, submit to your husbands, he was saying nothing that the ancient world would have found at all controversial. In Greek culture, in Hebrew culture, in Jewish marriages, all of that was just accepted. Women were submitted. But this this really was radical. Husbands, love your wives. I mean, most marriages did not take place because of love. They took place just because of property. It took place just to get a young couple settled and established and so on. And often, you wouldn't have much of a relationship with a girl, either in Greek society or in Jewish society, before you actually married her. And so young people would go into without any great expectations of one another or any great knowledge of one another either. That being the case, um, it wasn't always um, a love match that took place. And often in ancient society, it wasn't expected to be. Um, There's one classical quotation I meant to bring with me, and I didn't, uh, but uh, I remember it was a, 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 a Roman who was notorious for his affairs who was confronted by his wife, and she said, I'm your wife, don't you remember that? He said, yep, you're there to produce the babies and look after the house. You are not my source of sexual satisfaction. And that was very much the way. It's been said that for a wealthy Roman, there were often four kinds of women in his life. There was his wife, who was there to bring him a dowry and have children and keep the family name going and make sure his children didn't disgrace him. There were the slaves, who were disposable, You could sleep with any of them that you wanted and nobody would think any worse of you. After all, a man has needs, doesn't he? And if you're uh, feeling that way inclined and as a slave girl, come on, slave. They would just have to do it. They're disposable as a Kleenex. Third, there were... um, People who were common prostitutes, there are plenty of those around. If you go to Ephesus nowadays, you will find um, that just outside the massive auditorium, on the road that leads from the, 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 the uh, harbour up into the main city, there is in one of the, the, the uh, paving stones, twistled, an advert showing you the way to the brothel. It's been there since the time of Paul. And it was a very useful sign in those days because lots of people were looking for it. There was no shame involved in that sort of behaviour. And so there were three uh, classes of women. The fourth class was the hetairai, the people who were high-class escorts. They were educated. They studied literature. They knew about the latest plays. And you would take them out to the top places. And then, of course, you would sleep with them as well. And so you would have relations right across the board with four different kinds of women, and you wouldn't think any the worse of it. And Paul says, no, no. Love your wives. That is pretty radical. The word he uses for love your wives is the word agape. And as you probably know, there are different words in Greek for love. And agape is the the word that the Christians chose to to talk about the love of Christ. Love that asks for nothing back. The love that just pours itself out without any thought of reward. And this is the word he applies to marital relations. He says, husbands, this is the kind of love that you've got to have for your wives. You've got to care for them in that way. And you've got to do it, he says, as Christ loved the church. That's your example. It's the same kind of love, just as Jesus gave everything he had in human terms so that the church could become his bride. So you have got to be prepared to lay yourself down uh, for your wife. And he talks about a kind of love here, which I think there are three words that, uh, that sum it up. And the three words, I think, are first of all, costly, Because that's what agape love is all about. And uh, he he, he says here, doesn't he? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church. And that's the second word, visionary. We need to have a, a relationship with our partners, which is a costly one in which we let go of all of our unselfish inclinations and simply try to fulfill what they need to have to be the kind of people that God created them to be. And that means it's a visionary love as well. Christ looked forward to what the church could be, a radiant bride for himself. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that kind of vision for my marriage is one I need to get. How can I make that woman everything God wants her to be? What do I have to bring to my relationship with her, which will not distort the image of Christ in her, but will make it all the more fruitful and abundant? I remember when we started going out together, when we just got engaged, the guy who eventually married us, my old boss in Youth for Christ, Philip Vogel, said, it's been so good to see Anthea over the last six months. She's just blossomed. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's what I want to keep on going. I want her to blossom and become more and more fruitful as her married life goes by. I can't say with my hand and my heart that that has been my main priority all the way through. I want it to be, but that's what marriage should be. A visionary thing that sees what the other person can become and wants to take him or her there. And then it's supposed to be a fulfilling love as well. Christ looks forward to Presenting the bride to himself and being absolutely satisfied in everything she is because she's the perfect counterpart for him. Uh, uh, A radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, presented to himself. And that's the way it ought to be, isn't it? We ought to be able to find in our marriage partner, if we've got one, the total fulfillment of all of those those desires we have for, 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 for companionship and stimulation that, that, that we need a partner to, to, to fulfill in us. I, I'm always challenged by the verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, which actually seems to have been borrowed from ancient Egyptian wisdom literature, which talks about the fact that life is brief, and so you should always be clothed in white and have your head painted with oil. Uh, in other words, always look as if you're going to a party Because you've got to enjoy life to the full as much as you want. And it says, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of your life. And that's brilliant, because that's not there in the Egyptian version. (laughs) Only the Hebrews put that one in. Enjoy life, all the days of your life, with your life, whom whom you love. (laughs) And that seems to me God's picture of what's supposed to be going on here. Something that fulfills us to the full. And then we we'll reach the last bit that you'll be glad to hear, and this is the final thing I want to say tonight. What marriage should look like? Because after all, when a man looks after his wife, he's looking after his own body. And nobody ever hated his body. Well, I know some people who have, but they were twisted. Normal people take care of their body all the time, don't they? You wake up in the morning and you think, coffee. Or perhaps you think about, I must wash. And you, you think about... Uh, reading scripture and filling your mind with that it's 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 your body that you're thinking about all the time isn't it you're doing something with your physical presence that changes it and you carry on taking care of your body right through the day and paul says you know if you take care of your body like that then treat your partner in that way too and husbands love your wives that way and he says this is this is the way it's supposed to be because we are uh, christ looks after the church in that way for we are members of his body And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2 and saying, there you are, you see. This is the way God planned it, right back from the start of creation. For this reason, a man and a woman will come together. He says, this is a profound mystery. Well, marriage is a mystery in some ways, isn't it? The way of a man with a maid, according to the Old Testament, is one of those things that's very difficult to understand. And there are many times in marriage when I think, now, why did she say that? What was that all about? What's going on there? And marriage is a strange and wonderful thing. But Paul is saying, look, this is not the mystery I'm talking about, the mystery of however you manage to live your life with women. The mystery I'm talking about, he says, is Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery. What do you mean by a mystery? Well, he's using the word that means something that was a mystery, once, that wasn't revealed to human beings, and now it has been. So what he's saying is, way back in the days when Genesis chapter 2 was written, nobody had any idea about Christ and the church, his bride, except that God did. And so it wasn't revealed at that point. And it's only now, since the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that we started to realize there's Jesus and there's the church and the relationship with them is just like marriage. And it's not because God thought of marriage first, And then thought of the church as Jesus' bride a bit down the road. No, he had the plan of salvation in place before the foundation of the world. So before the first human marriage, it was already the case. that God had in in, in place this plan for Christ and the church. And so John Piper says the mystery is this. God did not create the union of Christ and the church after the pattern of human marriage. Just the reverse He created human marriage on the pattern of Christ's relation to the church. That's a mind-boggling thought, really, isn't it? That what God has done in marriage is to give us a picture of something far, far bigger that he was going to do in history. And when we live out his principles for marriage correctly, we start to see some of the beauty, some of the splendor of what Christ and the church is all about. No wonder... That's the first of the three things that he picks to to use as examples of the ways in which we can show God's glory through our relationships. John, am I handing back to you, or am I just finishing? Sorry. Uh, yeah. I have you. Okay, fine. Right. I'll have go to you at this point.